0: Hey, everybody. Before we get started, just a quick announcement. The episode that you're about to hear of Backbar originally aired as Bar None in 2016. Cheers. If people know an origin story for the Manhattan, it's usually the one about Winston Churchill's mother, Jenny Jerome. Legend has it that she was throwing a victory party one night in New York City for newly elected governor Samuel J. Tilden. Socialite Jenny wanted to concoct a new drink for the occasion. Something cool. Something sexy. Something that would make people talk. Well, vermouth was still new at the time. It was novel. It was imported. And Tilden, he was a member of a forceful political subspecies known as the Bourbon Democrats. No surprise then that Jenny whipped up a potent combination of bitters, sweet vermouth, and American whiskey as a toast to success that night at New York's famous Manhattan Club. Is it true? Absolutely not. Does V for Victory make a Manhattan taste better? You better believe it does. I'm Greg Benson, and this
1: is Bar None. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. Grass-fed beef raised on California's Central Coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com.
0: Hello, everyone,
1: and welcome to the show.
0: You're listening to Bar None, the monthly podcast where we cover the history of drinks, their creators, their recipes, their legends, and in turn, we'll see how what we're drinking shapes history. Every episode, we're going to pick one drink, and look at the indelible, unique mark it left on its heyday. But, since this is the very first episode of the show ever, we're going to take a step back. We're going to look at cocktails as a whole, where they came from, what they're doing, and who got them there. You're going to hear a lot on this program from eclectic luminaries with names like The Only William and Cocktail Bill. Their stories are amusing, weird, sometimes downright unbelievable, but without them, the world of bartending as we know it surely would not exist. Besides, what's a good drink without a great Genesis story? Our co-pilot today is one of the cocktail kingdom's oldest and most venerable members, a drink the Atlantic Constitution called in 1909 the, quote, all-conquering Sazerac. We picked the Sazerac for our pilot Not just because it's the first branded drink, or because its history tracks a nice parallel with the history of the cocktail itself. We chose it because of all the things people know about it that aren't true. This drink, and drinks writ large, have a vast amount of information circling around them that is categorically, verifiably false. And the important thing to note going forward is that this is not necessarily a bad thing. It's what makes being a bartender so enjoyable, while at the same time it can make being a journalist very deeply infuriating.
2: But, um, yeah, it's one thing as a cocktail historian that's always uh, it's a bit frustrating, and uh, is that you can often prove what isn't true, hmm. but you can rarely prove what is. Not never. Um, there's times when you can actually, you know, find, prove something, but often people are like, well, do you think this is the true story of a drink of a- the Bronx cocktail. Like, no, because I have a recipe from earlier than that.
0: That's Greg Bohm, a Manhattan-based entrepreneur who runs Cocktail Kingdom, a publishing house slash barware emporium slash museum slash library in New York's Flatiron District. You're going to be hearing a lot from him on this podcast because we talked for a while and he's a very, very smart guy. But I do have to warn you, the audio quality isn't perfect. We were talking in his office in New York, it was a nice day, the window was open, you can hear New York City in the background.
2: I mean, the aviation cocktail comes to mind a little bit where there's uh, aviation was created and therefore people would talk about the aviation cocktail. And uh, there's more than one version of it because aviation was kind of a big thing back then you know the Wright brothers made the news and um, all of a sudden you had multiple drinks so people find a drink with that history and oh look they're both called the aviation well it's, it's two people two bartenders creating this a drink with the same name that have no commonality whatsoever kind of like how I'm
0: Pretty sure, sure. At, at various spots in the United States of America, there are two drinks somewhere named the
2: Bernie Sanders, but they're probably not the same yeah, drink, basically. Exactly, exactly, especially when it's based on an event. So
0: you can see why researching cocktails can be such a sticky business. For every story that you think might be true, there's bound to be at least a half a dozen others that look just as plausible as yours. Not to mention, booze has a long and storied history of avoiding print, as evidenced by the almost 60-year gap between the first time the word cocktail appeared in a newspaper and the publication of the first book of recipes in the United States. Plus, speaking from personal experience here, the very nature of creating drinks is ironically counterproductive to remembering them. By the time you get a cocktail to where it really, truly wants to be, it probably isn't the first time you've tasted it. Or the second time. Or the third. Let's go back to Churchill's mother for a second. The tale of Jenny and the Manhattan is lovely, no doubt about it. But five minutes on Wikipedia will tell you that at the time of this party in New York, Jenny also would have had to be back in England giving birth to Winston Churchill. So you see, it's false. Provably. Verifiably. And yet... Ms. Jerome is still an integral player in the history of the Manhattan because, as Greg is fond of saying, a good legend makes a drink taste better.
2: As I always lecture, I often say, legend has it, or this, you know, it's commonly thought, even if I debunked it, doesn't mean it's not a good piece of lore, because at some point that lore has lived for a long enough time that it's given energy to the drink and it's still an important, important part of the history of that drink. Even if it's not true, I'm saying it's still important. If it was something that wasn't just a, you know, a a mistake on the internet. If it's something, a story that's been told, it still becomes part of the lore of that cocktail.
0: The push and pull between fact and legend is nowhere more obvious than in the origins of the word itself. Cocktail. In my research, I copied down literally dozens of different explanations for where in the hell the word cocktail actually came from. Most of them from recipe books most of them written by experts who swore that their explanation was the one and only gospel truth. In his introduction to The World's Drinks and How to Mix Them, William Boothby, or Cocktail Bill, as he preferred to be called, writes that, quote, all experienced bartenders acknowledge the undisputed fact that considerable difference exists between the way that beverages are mixed and served in different sections of the universe. Then, true to form he immediately goes on to pinpoint exactly why his interpretations are the ones that are certifiable grade A truth. I saw any number of stories about spurned, anti type characters cutting off the tails of their beloved's prized roosters and serving their own cocktails back to them. I found one amusing anecdote about a lovesick American general and an Aztec princess whose name I'm pretty sure is pronounced hawk though it's tough to say it does begin with an X. And then there was the one that I really truly wanted to be real. I found one source that claimed the name cocktail came from the French word for egg cup, which was the measuring device of choice for one New Orleans bartender whenever he made, what else, a Sazerac. Sadly, I couldn't find a single credible source to back this up, so I had to relegate it to the realm of things I just wish were true. For better or for worse, the most likely explanation for where the word cocktail came from is also easily the most vulgar. It seems that it was commonplace when putting an over-the-hill horse up for sale in the early 19th century to give it a little boost, a helpful pick-me-up to make it seem lively and frisky in the form of a ginger suppository. Just like I'm sure that everyone who's ever chewed a piece of raw ginger is wincing right now, there's no doubt in my mind that this would make even the most broken-down mare seem lively and full of life. But the unintended consequence of this is that it would make said unfortunate animal cock its tail up. When you remember that the cocktail was originally drunk not after work, but before breakfast under the guise of being good for health and vitality, It's really not that big of a jump from taking a little bitters in the morning to wake you up and shoving a piece of raw ginger up your ass. The first time the word cocktail is defined in print is on May 6, 1806, by the Reverend Dr. Harry Croswell. Croswell was the editor of the Hudson Balance and Columbian Repository, a politically inclined newspaper that the week before had run a snark piece about a losing Democratic candidate, specifically tailored to rub it in. Therein, he'd used a word that was apparently novel enough to prompt one reader to write in and ask for clarification. That word was cocktail. Cocktail, then, is a stimulating liquor, composed of spirits of any
3: kind, sugar, water, and bitters. It is vulgarly called bittered sling, and is supposed to be an excellent electioneering potion, inasmuch as it renders the heart stout and bold at the same time that it fuddles the head. It is said also to be of great use to a democratic candidate because a person having swallowed a glass of it is ready to swallow anything else.
0: Now, this is not the first time that the word cocktail appears in print. We get it 3 years earlier in a tongue-in-cheek article from a New Hampshire paper called The Farmer's Cabinet. In a sly little humor piece, the author, who's likely the paper's editor Joseph Cushing, details in diary format the morning of a young man a member of the moneyed class with no drive or inclination to put his youth or his wealth toward any good whatsoever. Cushing calls this man a lounger, but I don't think it will be that much of a stretch for anyone out there to get a good mental picture of him today. As the story begins, our hero is waking up late after an assembly and feeling out of sorts. It goes on.
3: Eleven. Drink a glass of cocktail. Excellent for the head. "'Went to the squires, girls just done breakfast. "'Memorandum, girls not so bright after dancing. "'Went to the colonels, drank a glass of wine, "'called at the doctors, drank another glass of cocktail.'
0: It's always seemed fitting to me, bars being as they are places of free discourse and uninhibited opinion, that both the first time the cocktail appears in print and the first time it's defined, it's used to take shitty, condescending potshots at people who aren't there to defend themselves. It's also worth noting that that first guy, Harry Croswell, was a tireless crusader for freedom of the press, an early advocate for the educational rights of African Americans, a notable martyr for the First Amendment, and would probably hate the shit out of the fact that he's best remembered in 2016 as the first guy who told us how to mix an old-fashioned. So that's the word cocktail. But what about the word Sazerac? It's a great name. It certainly rolls off the tongue, which probably explains why it's been the name of several different things over the past couple centuries. It's been a coffee house, a bar, a cocktail, and today it's a highly awarded brand of rye whiskey. In fact, probably the most intriguing thing about the Sazerac is that it's this perfect distillation of American culture, this mismatched telephoned hodgepodge of different stuff that's all been begged, borrowed, and stolen from somewhere else. So it's no surprise that before the award winning Sazerac rye, before the Sazerac coffee house, before the world renowned Sazerac cocktail, there was a brand of cognac that reached America sometime around 1850. It bore the delightfully French-sounding name Sazerac de Forges et Fils, and eventually, probably inevitably, it wound up in that most francophilic of places, the Crescent City, New Orleans. As for how exactly Sazerac became THE Sazerac, that's a little dicier. The drink first appears in print, fittingly enough, in a fraternity journal in 1899, The brothers of Alpha Tau Omega had held their annual conference in New Orleans the year before and were quite impressed by the refreshments the city had to offer. Some things never change, I suppose. At that point, the Sazerac House Bar was being run by two men, Billy Wilkinson and Vincent Moret, whom the press had dubbed the Two Giants of the Sazerac. Both were large, Both were charismatic, and what the two of them pulled off was either con artistry on a massive scale or fantastic salesmanship, depending on how you choose to look at it. The Sazerac House was put on the map by a man named Thomas Handy, another big figure in booze history who is credited with switching the drink to a rye whiskey base and thus usually gets tagged with its invention. Sadly, by the time Spring Break 99 rolled around, Thomas Handy had been dead for six years, but Thomas H. Handy & Company had outlived its namesake, still owned the bar, and had a little business on the side selling pre-batched, pre-bottled cocktails. This included a whiskey cocktail that would later become known as the Sazerac. Here's the thing, though. If you look at the original recipe, Handy & Company's whiskey cocktail is practically identical to another drink invented years earlier by another celebrity bartender called the Improved Whiskey Cocktail. What was Wilkinson and Moret's secret? World-class professionalism. The two men were so good at what they did and so well-respected in New Orleans that it was only a matter of time before their whiskey cocktail and THE whiskey cocktail were all synonymous with the name of their bar. If Tom Handy was the one who invented the Sazerac, then the Giants were the ones who perfected it. Enough for the Times Picayune to hail Wilkinson in 1902 as, quote, the creator of that most soothing and invigorating decoction, the Sazerac.
4: The Sazerac is. It's New Orleans.
0: That's Caroline Rosen. She's the president of Tales of the Cocktail, one of the world's biggest bartending conventions that takes place every summer in the heart of the Big Easy.
4: It's just hard to put into words because it's so simple. It's so fulfilling. Um, We drink it when it's hot. We drink it when it's cold. (laughs) We drink it all year round. And um, it truly has just uh, worked its way into the ethos of what we do and who we are.
0: You don't have to go far in the French Quarter to find someone who appreciates a good Sazerac, especially if you run into Caroline. She's got this fierce, dyed-in-the-wool appreciation for a drink that's been a part of New Orleans culture for almost 200 years and hasn't really changed all that much. Like a shark that reached evolutionary perfection eons ago, while we all still kind of look like marmosets. Except that Sazerac, the original key ingredient and namesake of the drink itself, is a French cognac, not the American rye you'd find in your cocktail glass today. So, what's the whiskey doing in there? According to Caroline, it sprung up from a brandy shortage... And some quick thinking.
4: It was barely enough to go around in cognac uh, in Europe, and there was no way it was making it to New Orleans. So I think, like any good New Orleanian, um, we continue to move ahead, uh, we adapt. And it was something that was, even with the switch, it struck the hearts of New Orleans. And I think that one of the things that's so great is. It was still able to keep the qualities. It was able to make it a more New Orleans kind of drink. And it's something that stuck. I mean, I I really, I mean, I know there's a debate that you could obviously go back and that was the original way, but New Orleanians loved it. I think it showed their pride of New Orleans being self-sufficient and it stuck.
0: That recipe that she mentioned from Thomas Handy appears in Cocktail Bill's book and an undated supplement that's probably from around 1911 or so. The lead-up reads, from the recipe of the late Tom Handy, ex-manager of the world-renowned Sazerac Bar.
3: Wrap an old-fashioned flat bar glass, then take a mixing glass and muddle half a cube of sugar with a little water. Add some ice, a jigger of good whiskey, two dashes of Peychaud's bitters, and a piece of twisted lemon peel. Stir well until cold and then throw the ice out of the bar glass. Dash several drops of absinthe into the same and rinse well with the absinthe. Now strain the cocktail into the frozen glass and serve with ice water on the side.
0: For those of you following along at home, a half a cube of sugar is equivalent to one half teaspoon, a jigger is two ounces, and the whiskey originally called for was Maryland Rye. Rat of luck on that front, as no one has yet to step up and craft an authentic 1911 Old Lion State reproduction, but fortunately for us, there's Rittenhouse Rye out of Pennsylvania. A few miles to the north, just as good. So maybe the switch was just a tribute to Handy's homeland. Maybe, as another expert suggested, it was an attempt to dump foreign products in favor of whiskey, our unofficial, if much-beloved, national spirit. This was, after all, the high point of America's on-again, off-again love affair with imperialism, and homegrown liquors would have been very much in vogue. One thing that is certain is that there was another force at work turning the tide away from cognac, an ugly biological byproduct of global commerce called phylloxera. Phylloxera is a bug. It's a close relative of the aphid and is small, quick to adapt, and almost impossible to kill. English scientists imported it entirely by accident when collecting American vines for study in the 1850s, which exposed an entire population of grapes without natural defenses to this fast-moving, opportunistic, and devastating insect. The grapes of Europe were eventually saved by another miracle of modern science, the grafting of phloxera-resistant New World roots onto Old World vines, but not before anywhere between two-thirds and nine-tenths of European vineyards were destroyed, altering the twin industries of wine and brandy forever. Soon after cognac disappeared from the glass, the Sazerac suffered another setback as a second old-world ingredient fell victim to modern-day stupidity, this time, though, of a slightly different stripe. That victim was absinthe, and the stupidity in question wasn't an invasive species or a man-made superbug, but good, old-school, garden-variety ignorance. Absinthe is one of the most consistently misunderstood spirits in the entire world, Even in its heyday, when the nation of France was consuming almost 10 million gallons of the stuff per year, it was being blamed for everything from laziness and depression to violence and infanticide. And I'm willing to bet that even today, the first thing the word absinthe conjured up when I mentioned it was an upbeat, chartreuse-tinted Boz Lerman Lady Marmalade acid trip with an overarching windmill theme. So, before we go any further... Let's take a moment to pause and debunk the legend of the Green Fairy. There's a great book I found from 1903 called The Flowing Bowl, which reads like a food and wine compendium written by Ebenezer Scrooge. In a book whose forward wonders why in the hell anyone would want a mixed drink and whose body is almost entirely devoted to the history of mixed drinks, author Edward Spencer takes a brief moment to say something shitty about absinthe. Of all the liquors, absinthe is the most pernicious. Once you get absinthe, it gets
3: you and never leaves you whilst you last. There is a weird, almost tragic look about the milky liquid when diluted with water, as to suggest smoke and brimstone and flames with a demon rising from their midst. But it is only the little
0: green fairy who is, however, as deadly and determined as any demon. The green fairy, that vindictive little boggart, has been the scapegoat for countless atrocities and faux pas over the centuries. But where does she come from? Yes, absinthe contains wormwood, and yes, wormwood contains a chemical compound called thujone, and yes, thujone is a dangerous substance which can cause convulsions and brain damage in human beings. But it appears in such minuscule quantities in both modern-day and historical absinthe as to render its ill effects completely moot. So what about the green fairy? Well... Absinthe is generally an overproof spirit, bottled around 120 proof, which means it clocks in at roughly 60% alcohol. Now think, what chemical do we know of that causes people to act irrationally after they've had just a little bit too much? Think of thujone like the tryptophan in your Thanksgiving turkey. Yes, turkey does contain a compound that causes drowsiness, but so does chicken and beef and a handful of other very common foods. This means the real reason you're always so tired on the fourth Thursday of November isn't a mysterious sleep aid hiding in the main course, it's your practice of eating enough calories in one sitting to feed a medieval European village for a week. By the same token, people who drink a lot of absinthe aren't drooling and falling over because of some spiteful, psychoactive, lime-green demigod. They're just... drunk. Drunk. Despite all this, and despite the fact that the research proving the dangers of absinthe was carried out by a teetotaler with a bone to pick about alcohol, the entire world bought it. Absinthe was banned first in Belgium in 1906, Switzerland in 1910, the United States in 1912, and finally France in 1914. Looking back on it, it's easy to see absinthe as a canary in the coal mine of Prohibition. The embargo came at a time when public support was beginning to sway towards temperance, as it became increasingly fashionable and convenient to blame any number of social ills on the evils of drink. Teetotaling religious ideals and fundamental misunderstandings of scientific findings were starting to take hold in the early part of the 20th century, until finally, on October 28, 1919, over many social objections and President Woodrow Wilson's veto, Congress signed the National Prohibition Act into law. The country went dry when the 18th Amendment came into effect that January, just eight years after the absinthe ban.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's Central Coast since 1865. Today. Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August in select whole food markets throughout California and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
0: It's difficult to understate the devastating effect that prohibition had on the United States. Aside from the well-chronicled rise of organized crime and the millions of dollars in lost tax revenue, it cut a thriving distillation industry off at the roots and set breweries back decades on a global scale. We'll get into this more extensively in episode three, but for right now, our primary casualty is the still young, still changing, and peculiarly American craft of cocktail bartending. The first time we see a true celebrity bartender in the United States is in 1826 at the City Hotel in New York. He was encountered by Lieutenant the Honorable Frederick Fitzgerald de Russe of the British Royal Navy while tending bar and manning the front desk in the lobby. His name was Orsamis Willard, or actually just Willard. He wasn't particularly fond of using his first name, lord only knows why. The lieutenant's impression of him? Is as follows.
3: The entrance to the house is constantly obstructed by crowds of people passing to and from the bar-room, where a person presides at a buffet formed upon the plan of a cave. This individual is engaged from morn to dewy eve in preparing and issuing forth punch and spirits to strange-looking men who come to the house to read the newspapers and talk politics.
0: That's the very first mention we have of Willard. This is a man who is widely credited with the popularity of the mint julep, who brought to the fore a previously unknown ingredient in mixology known as ice, who is described later by another Englishman as the Napoleon of barkeepers, and his first time in print reads like a two-star Georgian-era Yelp review. I'm going to step outside of the safe fact-checked cocoon of feature-length journalism and into the wide, scary, speculative world of editorialism for a second. Could it be that prohibition, beyond being a well-intentioned, if poorly executed, attempt at social change, beyond being fueled by a fundamental misinterpretation of scientific facts that was ignorant at best and scapegoatish at worst, could it be that it was aided at least in part by a fundamental lack of respect for the craft of service? If you examine any period of history between the American Revolution and yesterday, you are guaranteed to find some mention of the bad bartender. He's existed for hundreds of years, and yet he hasn't learned a goddamn thing. He's boorish. He's ignorant. He's usually drunk. He's the enthusiastic poster boy for everything that's wrong with his profession, and worst of all, his fictional ass is ruining things for the rest of us. Just look at what happened to me last month when I was at the dentist.
4: What are you doing these days? Oh, you know,
0: same old, same old, still bartending in the same place.
4: Oh. What else are you doing?
0: Nothing. That's it. That's my job. Oh. So are you doing anything else or is dentistry going to be like it for you? Okay, I didn't actually say that last part, but it's not because I sold out on my principles. I was just really concerned that this would have happened next.
3: Benson, but it looks like this entire row of molars is going to have to go They're going to feel a slight pitch.
0: Maybe, just maybe, we can change our misunderstandings about alcohol by changing the way we behave around the people who make it. Either way, from nineteen twenty to nineteen thirty three, the Sazerac and its brothers and sisters were forced underground while on the surface, the improved moral and social health promised by the dry lobby started to eat itself. Crime rates spiked, drug addiction rose by almost 45%, and mafia bosses like Al Capone and Tom Dennison were allowed to flourish at a rate beyond anything America had ever seen before. Prohibition lost more and more supporters every year until finally, in 1933, 36 states ratified the 21st Amendment to repeal Prohibition. Repeal Day, December 5th, is still celebrated by professionals and fans alike, and the 21st Amendment remains to this day the only amendment that exists specifically to undo another one. As the country dealt with the collective hangover from Prohibition, the Sazerac was coming back in a big way in New Orleans. To hear Caroline tell it, it was almost like it never left.
4: Asking what the Sazerac means to the city of New Orleans is comparable to asking what jazz and Creole and Cajun food mean to the city of New Orleans. It is the city of New Orleans.
0: It's not hard to see why this drink was never lost in its hometown. It's been a part of the culture for generations, and by all appearances, it isn't going anywhere anytime
4: soon. People from the South used to have to travel to get a lot of their medical uh, work done. And so you would go to Atlanta or you would go to New Orleans, and you would go for two weeks and you would have all of your medical history done. And um, my grandma, my great grandmother, kept a lot of her menus, and so I have my great grandmother's menus from Galatoire's. I have my great grandmother's menus from Commander's Palace, and her handwritten notations next to it. And I don't know if any of the listeners here have had the opportunity to go see T and Lolly, T Martin and Lolly Brennan at Commander's Palace. They are two of the most wonderful human beings that have truly carried on a family legacy. And I showed them um, my grandmother's menu of commanders and she had starred the turtle soup. And then there was the drink menu and she had starred next to the Sazerac. And it just gives you this feeling of, of truly connecting in a way. And it's, it's something that was across It was something that was for all New Orleanians. It was something that was for all the people joining in the city. And I think that's so special. And I think that that's the staying power and the power that our community of New Orleans has. I just got chill bumps thinking about it. That's what really makes it special for me.
0: Residents and travelers to New Orleans may have been able to enjoy a good Sazerac for centuries. But elsewhere in the country, by the mid-60s and 70s, this drink was almost nowhere to be found. There are a few mentions of it here and there, including an amusingly similar cocktail called an Absinthe New Orleans, which appears in the first edition of a Marco Liquor's Compendium, and a Absinthe New Orleans in the second, third, and fourth, which is the exact same thing, minus one particular key ingredient. And let us not forget the Sazerac a la Playboy, which appears in the venerable magazine's 1971 host and bar book as follows.
2: Pour Pernod into pre-chilled old-fashioned glass and roll glass until inside is completely coated. Add one small sugar cube, two dashes of Peychaud's bitters, and one dash of Angostura bitters in enough cold water to barely cover the sugar. Muddle until sugar is completely dissolved. Add one and a half ounces of rye whiskey and a large ice cube. Stir well, twist lemon peel above drink, and drop into glass. Created by George Crochet, head bartender at the New Orleans Playboy Club. Mm
0: -hmm. Not bad, especially considering at the time, you could have done a lot worse. Remember, this was written in the 1970s, and America had long since lost its interest in Manhattans and dry martinis, issuing in an era of disco and bright blue beverages that's widely referred to by cocktail historians as the Dark Ages. For evidence, look no further than Playboy's classic Sazerac recipe, listed directly above the one we just mentioned. It's made with bourbon or blended whiskey and is billed as, quote, a magnificent pre-brunch drink.
5: There was a little segment that was, that was, the, it was called the dark age of the cocktail in the 80s, when, <laughs> when everything was like brightly colored and, you know, fake ingredients. And, you know, it was more just for kind of aesthetic than taste.
0: That's Sutter Teague beverage director at Manhattan's Amor Iamargo and Service Industry Polyglot. He took some time to talk with me about this blotch on the cocktail timeline, where it came from, and how we eventually got rid of it. And once again, this interview is happening in New York City, which, just like last time, is still a noisy place.
5: I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's just a trail we've been going down since the 50s, you know, like uh, when we could suddenly have uh, preserved items, things that were in cans, things that were frozen and you just threw it in the oven and you know tv dinners and that kind of thing convenience americans are suckers for convenience we'll take something convenient over something quality i say eight out of ten times you know what i mean like we're just oh you mean i'm a bar owner or even if i'm not a bar owner i'm a i'm a consumer and i can have this product that is shelf stable and it's there when i want it and it won't rot when i don't use it for a while and it's just there yeah, I want that. I want that on my gun.
0: As most of us were probably aware, even before AMC's Mad Men made it painfully obvious, the 1960s and the dry martini are practically synonymous. It was a sophisticated drink for a sophisticated time. After all, the United States had just come out of the Second World War not just as a winner, but in many ways as the winner, and it seemed only fitting to reward ourselves with a decade-long celebratory drink. But out of that societal framework grew a new cultural force, the me-generation, and they wanted absolutely nothing to do with their parents' button-down, fuddy-duddy cocktails. It's unclear what the decisive factor was that turned Americans away from cocktails in the 1970s. One source I talked to said disco, one other said globalization, religion, the cola wars, and as we just heard, mass consumption have all been pointed to as likely culprits. One source I talked to, who we'll hear more from next month when we do this era in depth, said that drug culture could be at fault, adding that, quote, "...maybe cocaine became the martini of the 1970s." Whatever you blame, the Bee Gees, Coke and Pepsi, or just Coke, the 70s were a dark time for the cocktail. But as in the past, tides turned, the cocktail came back in vogue, and as if on cue, legends sprung up as to who had effected this wonderful and visionary change. This time, the tall tale circled around New York City's famous Rainbow Room and a man named Dale DeGroff.
5: So I kind of like have this vision in my mind of him just being like behind the bar and kind of looking around and saying to himself, why would I use this, you know, gun sour mix when I have lemons and limes right here? Why can't I just squeeze my own? You know, I just see him being like very pragmatic about it and just being the first one to do that in on a large scale um, and then having people come and have the drinks at a very, you know, sort of famous landmarky kind of place, and be like, holy cow, this guy's cutting edge. When (laughs) cutting edge is kind of the opposite of what he was, he was sort of like going back to the basics.
0: The short version of the story reads a little bit like the voiceover for a movie trailer. In a world where taste in drinks was at its most Crayola-colored low, one man dared to challenge it all. When everything from lemonade to margarita mix came out of a soda gun, Dale was the only one with the courage and the balls to take the lemons life gave him and squeeze them into lemonade. I'm only half-joking. It's common to view Dale DeGroff as a lone rebel, the one person who dared to challenge the mass-produced system. But was he just the right guy in the right place at the right time? Here's what Sutter had to say
5: love to think that there's a, a you know a, a ground zero or a genesis point for all these sorts of things but surely it was a, a bit of collective subconscious you know um, everyone was their palates were getting weakened and tired of these like overly sugary overly syrupy brightly colored cocktails um, that, that you know led to uh, debaucherous evenings and terrible terrible hangovers the next day um, so I think <laughs> it was probably a collective subconscious situation however he happened to be in a, in a spot of high profile um, and was a guy with great charisma, so you know he gets he gets the lion's share of that credit, which he certainly do. But at the same time, it couldn't have. I have to believe it's collective subconscious. There's no way that one man decided to go against the, <laughs> the giant machine that was making shitty syrups and putting them on the gun. You know.
0: However, it happened. Cocktails came roaring back in the last few years of the 20th century, and at the forefront of this revival, once again, the all-conquering Sazerac.
2: I think. What's happened now is if you kind of don't want to make things too complicated, I mean, you could order an old-fashioned, but if you want something not quite as commonplace and a little more, hey, I know what I'm doing, I'm not just following a trend, the Sazerac's definitely having its moment in the sun. Uh, if you walk into a cocktail bar and order a Sazerac, um, it is a sophisticated drink. It's a not incredibly difficult to make drinks, so you're not... Uh, ordering a Ramos Gin Fizz, which the bartender may give you an evil look for, but uh, (laughs) I think it's definitely a good, it speaks to what people are drinking right now.
0: And, seven years ago, the Sazerac scored another victory. Absinthe, after 97 years, was finally re-legalized in the United States in 2009. That means if you're like me and you like mixing your purest sensibilities with a little bit of naughty experimentation, you can finally make your Sazerac the way I like it. Two dashes of Peychauds, two dashes of Angostura, a half teaspoon of Demerara sugar, and an ounce and a half of rye, mixed with just half an ounce of cognac, stirred and poured into a rocks glass, rinsed with real absinthe. And that's that. We're up to the present day, the cocktail is saved, absinthe is back, and the future is nothing but bright and rosy for mixed drinks from here on out. Right?
2: cocktail, the is actually a very good example of where I think cocktail's growing now. It, it scares me. Um, I think it's now harder to get a good cocktail than it's been um, in my lifetime, and in a way easier. Uh, it's harder, kind of, if you look up a recipe on the internet, it's hard to get a good recipe, but it's easy to get a good recipe. I mean, you're going to get a ton of recipes. So, it just... It, if you go back six years ago, if a place had a cocktail list that they were proud of and they put it in front of you as soon as you sat down, somebody there cared and probably your cocktail was going to be pretty good. Was it going to be great? I don't know. But now, people feel obligated to have cocktail lists, restaurants and uh, bars, both. And so, it's a pretty scary time because you'll sit down and they'll put a cocktail list in front of you and the cocktails may be atrocious.
0: Okay, but that's just one expert's opinion, right?
2: I think it's
5: interesting to note if you're going to use the South. I lived in New Orleans for many years. I'm from the South. Um, I think it's interesting to note that like the town that invented that drink um, that is so famous throughout the world, uh, it's hard to find one in New Orleans that's worth a shit. Uh, you walk really? down Bourbon Street and er- yeah, you walk down Bourbon Street and everything is just uh, what what we're just talking about, like stuff off the gun, candy, sweet, syrupy, bright colors. You know, the big giant hand grenades that you see people walking around with. Um, even even uh, um, Pat O'Brien's uh, Hurricane is a, a bastardization of what it once was. There's nothing fresh in that anymore. It's powdered mixes and just gross. Um, and then you go to even the uh, Hotel Leon and you sit down at the bar and you order a Sazerac and they just butcher the fuck out of it. It's not a great drink. You go to the Sazerac bar and you can get a decent one. You can go to uh, Arnaud's French 75 and get a great one. Um, but, like, they're few and far between. And it's – I don't know if you've ever seen the um, – Simpsons episode uh, the flaming Mo remember there's the scene where where Homer invents the drink on accident and then he gives the drink uh, the drinks recipe to Mo and and then when once the secret gets out it shows this scene of like just passing down the street and there's like street carts and they have the flaming Mo M-E-A-U-X you know kind of slightly misspelled or you know the flamer you know and all these different drinks and they're all just <laughs> bastardized versions of the thing I feel like that's kind of New Orleans like you can't even get the original thing in the town where the thing came from as good as it should be
0: wow We are truly fucked. I have to confess that when I asked both of these people what the state of the cocktail was, it was a puff question, a softball that I suspected I could probably use as a fade-to-white outro as the Sazerac rode off into the sunset. Instead, what I got was, well, kind of bleak. But there was one bright spot that surfaced when I pushed Greg a little on this issue. You have this interesting circular pattern of kind of like these very classy old school dry uncomplicated cocktails mm-hmm. and then there's sort of like it's essentially like in the in the 60s you kind of have that and at the same time you have tiki on the side yeah. where they, the two kind of seem like they're constantly reacting against each other like one will be it'll be like style and then you'll have like no it's got to be this like really stripped down highly spiritist thing and like oh no wait it can be like fun and have umbrellas in it mm-hmm. and Monkeys and flowers hanging the out of it and whatnot. The nature
2: of cocktails is funny because you just said something that I always think, which is, you're talking about the 60s, and I had to wait till you finish your sentence, you know, if you're talking about the 1860s or the 90s, <laughs> for a reason. It's the same. The 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s have very similar histories in both centuries.
0: Okay, so maybe we are fucked. But we're only fucked for now. Eventually, if the pattern holds, things will swing back around, and by 2060, we'll be seeing articles about how drinks have gotten far too dry, and then by 2070, they'll be way too sweet, and then sometime in the 2080s, some guy or girl or benevolent alien conqueror will come along and… well, you get the idea. Besides, Greg said something a little later on in that interview that filled me with a little bit of hope. The Sazerac, he said, is like a Wiener schnitzel. It's simple It's easy. It's whiskey with a few dashes of other stuff, like a breaded cutlet pounded flat. It's never going to be totally in fashion, but it's never going to go entirely out of fashion either. Here's Greg, one last time.
2: I mean, if you think the ceremony of it, the absinthe rinse and then dumping it out, I mean, a a nice, good, short ceremony created around a cocktail with a good name and nice ingredients and it's that perfect balance of a backlash against sweet drinks but it's not just booze in a glass it does have a little more balance than that so it's got some Manhattan aspects that makes it nice and balanced combined I mean you can see how it was successful it's a great drink
0: so that one drink at least is safe the all-conquering Sazerac keeps swimming through our hearts and minds the way it's been doing for the past hundred years the cocktail world keeps spinning And the legend, as they say, continues. This episode of Backbar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Backbar is powered by Simplecast. Special thanks to our amazing guests today, Greg Bohm, Souther Teague, and Caroline Rosen, and to our awesomely talented voice actors, Angela K. Perko, John Stang, and of course, Backbar's own Keegan Cassidy. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, you can subscribe to our newsletter by entering your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at Hundred hundredproofgreg, that's hundred with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com radio network. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place, and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Join us again in two weeks when we'll be talking about the martini, the 1960s, and more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers.